Welcome to The Director's Take, a podcast where we explore how you go from directing something with your mates to being the most senior decision maker on a film set. I'm Oz Arshad. And I'm Marcus Thomas. And we are both writer-directors at the beginning of our TV and feature film directing journeys. The pathway doesn't exist, so we are going to do our best to help bridge the gap. So we've got a, a really super interesting guest today who's in an interesting field that everybody's going to be fucking interested in. With directing, there's a whole thing around agents, right? There's the whole like sort of mystery where you think agents are going to be the people, I need an agent, and that's going to send me into the stratosphere like instantly. So what we decided to do was bring on an agent. Yes. <laughs> um, my agent, and that is Mark Brennan from United Agents. Hi, guys. Welcome. It's weird to speak in like this very formal format, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know what podcast speak is really. So I'm going with the flow here and I'm expecting direction in case I'm like, <laughs> pull back, go forward. Okay. Uh, give us like a little top line about what United Agents are and do. That'd be quite helpful, I think. We're one of the kind of the big, I'd say three agencies in the UK, along with independent Curtis Brown. So when I say big, I mean, we cover a lot of facets of the industry for representation. So for us, we do actors, we do writers, directors, producers under our film and TV and theater department. We have a below the line department, which deals with the craft people in film and TV. So production designers, DOPs, editors. Um, we also have a books department. So a big thriving IP section to the business. Um, and along with separate divisions that deal with commercials. Um, so kind of advertising and marketing opportunities for our clients and also a voiceover department for our acting talent that likes to do a bit of animation and games work. Amazing. Yes, we're a, we're a one-stop shop, as we like to say. And so I guess what we want to dig into is the relationship between specifically directors and agents. There's a bit of a myth, actually, where you kind of feel that, oh, I need a, an agent and that's going to get me the thing. And you might be thinking that after I've done one short call, now I need an agent to help me take over the world. At what point do you think a director should be looking for representation? And, and just to interject and preface that with, the industry's ever moving. Have agents changed as well in what they're looking for? I think this is the worst kind of the case scenario in terms of we always want to have one answer, one size fits all to kind of appease everybody because we don't like to lead creators on and we don't like to get expectations up. We also don't like to shatter dreams and be too harsh uh, where we can. But the reality check is each filmmaker is different in terms of their direction, but then also what they need in order to move forward with their craft. So I have young filmmakers that have had probably three or four shorts under their belt um, before they actually came to me for representation. Um, but there are other agents out there that sometimes see one short that's been produced or maybe two, and they think that there is a talent there that is, it, it deserves to be nurtured. And so they'll approach those people, they'll have conversations with those people. And really it's about where you feel you are in your creative process and its development. So some people can produce shorts quite soon in their career that represent quite an advanced storytelling ability. And you can see them being able to make the transition with their own work, long form wise, maybe quicker than some people that might take 
maybe five or six goes at a short film just to develop their narrative skill set. Either way is valid. Just because someone is able to, I suppose, has an innate ability to de- to deliver something that is a, a beautifully shot piece after maybe making one or two things. The time to take to develop something, it's totally, it, it, it's it's individualistic, but it doesn't reflect anybody is better than the other person. What counts for me is like, if I see material that I like, and I, I personally need to see at least two pieces of work, whether that's reading work from writers or directors, I would like to see at least two shorts that I can watch and go, actually, they do have a kind of a knack for storytelling. And I like the stories that they're telling in these pieces. I want to find out what else they want to tell, what else they want to say. And I'll sit down and have a conversation with them. Now, they can op- they can operate very independently on their own. And they're like, listen, I've got a plan to make a few more shorts. I can do this on my own. I've got the plan set up. I've got producers I can work with. I've got access to money. Um... I don't really need extra cooks in the kitchen necessarily, but I do have long form ambitions and these are stories I want to tell in TV or film. And what do you think of those? And I have a conversation with them about those pieces and I'm like, well, I think this would sit in a particular demographic or audience placement, but also it would work well with these kind of producers, these kind of broadcasters. But this is like a long-term plan so i'm saying to this going i think one day they'll be able to be to be made and i'm happy to work with you perhaps to get them to a place where we can introduce them to people and get them excited about your work but that won't happen tomorrow this could be a long game plan of maybe six to twelve months um if you're in the early stages of those ideas um or you could turn up to me after doing a few shorts and go, I have a fully, f- fully written screenplay. It's ready to go. And if I read it and go, Jesus, it really is. It's right there. It's right for someone taking it on. And, I, and I'm kind of like, I can see who this could play well with. Then I'll go and have a chat with that person. If I've seen the shorts work that they've done before and go, you need to sit down with this guy or this girl or this, or, or this person and have a conversation with them because... They're moving and they're going to be moving pretty quickly. And so with, with that initial chat, which you have, are you trying to gauge um, like the experience around the film? Say if someone comes to you of like one or two shorts, which have impressed you and have, have done okay, you're trying to gauge the, what's behind the filmmaker. So it could be relevant experience or whether they started off in acting and done a bit of that and transitioned or, or those sorts of things. Or because I guess it's quite difficult to go in with someone who might have like made two films that at like university and they're quite strong and then that's all they've had right yeah i mean film schools are great learning grounds for people in terms of they give you the space to just be a filmmaker and a creator and when we when we as agents meet film students we're always intrigued by the work that they've created at university but we want to know what has inspired and fueled that work because it just can't be the fact that i'm in film school so i decided to make this I like to hear about life experience and what has informed the work from that perspective because that's what's going to carry into your work beyond film school and it's what people use to make material even when they don't have the ability to go to film school there's loads of directors out there that just they pick up a camera and they just do it without tuition or without guidance because it's just innately within them to do it and you can see that in work you can see in someone's 
ability to direct and really capture a story that this is part of their soul and they need to do this and you feel an innate want to really help them to do it and it becomes almost like an addiction to going I need to I need to make sure that this person has every opportunity to get their work seen and to open doors I was going to say that I think that that's really I think for some of our listeners that will be really refreshing to hear because um, I think sometimes people do think that if someone who's been to film school, you know, not every filmmaker's got a film school, they've got limited places every year, that they somehow will be more, have, have an advantage over other people. But actually, it's just that they've, they've had a chance to create the stuff, whereas someone who hasn't been to film school, there might be a, um, a financial barrier to actually getting that stuff made. And it's good that you are saying that, that you recognise that, and it's not just about, or we're going to play an advantage with someone from film school over someone else. Oh, absolutely. And I, everybody that gets the chance to go to film school, it, it's, a, it's a real privilege. And it's a, the ability to cut out two years of your life to dedicate to it is something that very few people can do. And so it, it's, it's, a, it's a really fortunate opportunity. Um, some people I know go into debt because it's a very expensive opportunity unless you get scholarship um, chances which are few and far between um, but I have young directors on my book that didn't go to film school they did they've never gone to any kind of school to be taught to write to taught to direct it's just something that they they woke up one day and got about doing because that's what they want to do and when I look at their work and I look I've when I first started being an agent and I was looking for my first raft of clients, most of the people I took on initially, and they're still my first clients to this day, did not come through a film school process. And yet their talent is evident. And it's something that gets me excited all the time. Because when I got to know them, I got to know them personally and I got to know where their stories come from. And that's so invigorating because I always know that when they go to write something or when they have an idea, I'm going to be excited about it. And that's what I want to see when I represent filmmakers. Fantastic. One of the big questions that, you know, a lot of people have who are unsigned and unrepped is, you know, what is it that you look for? And I know it's such a vague question, which sometimes does elicit a vague answer of bold, new voice. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Something that jumps off the page or off the screen. <laughs> so I want to ask it, what do you look for in potential clients? Listen, I, I like I've I've got an ego like everybody else. So if I get approached by people and they're just like, "Here are my shorts. They have been at these film festivals. They have been nominated for these awards. I have worked with this person," my eyes go, bling bling bling, because I'm like, okay, not just because there are accolades here that you're like, okay, this person has been acknowledged by their peers and the industry in some respect, but that also means. This, there's actually, they've actually got a platform to work with that I can then join and then help bring them to the next stage of that. So part of me always looks for something in the client where they have shown kind of a hunger and a backbone to go out there and really get themselves known without relying on somebody else to do it. So if they've doesn't even have to come down to awards or notoriety in that respect. Someone can come to me and go, listen, I've made these two or three short films. This is how I went about and got them made. This is how I went about and got them cast. This is the finished product. I'm putting them into festivals at the moment. We've got a strategy around that. 
um, we're submitting them to awards. I want to use them as maybe tasters for maybe funding opportunities for features or TV series. There's clear thinking behind the work that they're doing. And I love seeing that thought because it really does represent, okay, this person is looking at this as a career. They're not looking at it as a side hustle. They're, it's not a hobby to them. Because if you treat it as that, you're going to get very frustrated and exhausted by the industry because it's long, it's arduous, and it gives you so many knockbacks that unless it really is something that you see as a as a calling, it it, it, it could break you, and it's not it's not a nice it's not a nice thing to go through. So when I get approached by directors, I want to see first and foremost that they've put time into building themselves up and not relying on anybody else. And that coming to me, they're looking for a collaborator to start helping open doors, but then also start giving them some insight into how this industry works and how that might influence the work that they do going forward and better it. Because we get a lot of people coming in going, I've written one script or I've directed one short film. It is going to be amazing. You will want to be a part of this and you, I need you to do this. And it's very much like, you know, your role is to make things happen for me. And it's kind of like, that's not our, that's not the, the, the fullness of our job. Yes, we are there to kind of, again, make introductions and collaborate with you to kind of hopefully work towards making something happen, but we can't wave a magic wand. And just as Marcus touched on, you know, when you get an agent, God, yeah. everything's going to happen for me now. Not so. It's still, a, it's still a struggle. You just have somebody, a professional kind of counterpart that you can come to. You can talk about that struggle. You can flip the struggle and strategize around it and be pushing forward with it so that you're not left... We're, if anything, we're there to be kind of like a Jiminy Cricket person for the first while until you get to a position where you can start making money. We're there to kind of t to give you context, to give you hope, but then also to be realistic with you. Um, So it's yeah. kind of like a person to help. We kind of help keep you propped up. We keep each other propped up because I'm investing in your talent and a real belief that you will get there someday and I will do everything I can to get you to that point. But for me, it's going to be a struggle as well. So we're both going to go on this struggling journey together. And that's why it's yeah. like, it's important that you find the right person because you're going to be on a long path for quite a while and you're going to look at each other sometimes and go, Jesus, I want to kill you. But you're also going to like, want to be with that person when the highs come and the good news comes and just look at each other and go, fuck man, we did it. 100%. The other day, um, Austin Butler won his BAFTA for Best Actor he actually thanked his agent like by name. You know, you, you you see the star, but you don't see the the engineering behind them that's got them to that point. Oh yeah, it's one of the most heartwarming things I've ever seen. Really, is when Olivia Coleman, one of our clients, won her Oscar for The Favorite, and one of the first people she thanked and very clearly gave it a good section of her speech was her agent Lindy King, who is the chairwoman of United, and was Olivia's first agent who took her on. At that point, they had been together for, I think, 25 years. And basically, basically said to her, thank you so much for taking a chance on me. And look where I am now. Amazing. We'll touch on more about the relationship uh, later, but I'm keen to know from the beginnings of the relationship how it starts. How should and shouldn't you approach agents? Because um, 
there's no sort of like context for this. I only learned a lot of the stuff around approaching agents from being at film school and asking people above me. A lot of people don't have access to that information. So from your perspective, how should and shouldn't you approach agents? So rule number one, if you're going to say any agency, don't email everybody. We get a lot of people doing blanket emails, sometimes in groups. So about 20 or 30 people get emailed at the same time. It's like, no, that's, that's bad. Be targeted. So if you're approaching an agency, be clear why you're approaching that agency and look at the agents within the departments. Look at the lists that they represent. That can't, that's not always easy because some agencies don't have their list public, but where they do, look at what those agents are drawn to talent-wise. See how you might fit in that universe. And when you go to approach that agent, explain after studying their list why you think they would make a good fit for it. Um, maybe do a bit of research on that agent as well, because as you know, I'm doing this podcast with you. Other agents do interviews. They do um, talk sessions. Um, there's there's lots of background on agents out there, and because it's as much our personality is as much about the package as the talent that we represent. I have I'm very proud of my list, and people come to me because they do like my list, but. It's just not about my list. It's also about who I am as a person. So I've had people where I've met them and we we really um, appreciate each other's talent, them as an agent, um, me as an agent, them as a filmmaker. But personality-wise, we didn't click. Hmm. In that sense, it is almost like dating. Each of us is like, God, God, you're fit. God, you're fit. And then you sit down and you start talking. It's like, oof, no, this isn't. <laughs> there's not much else going on there <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing here and it's like that awkward thing of like trying to walk away but then feeling rude about it which is why i always say to people when i meet them don't be afraid because just because i'm an agent and you're a fun, young filmmaker you can say no to me and not be worried because if you don't feel that i am a good match for you you just say that I'm, as marcus knows i'm very blunt i'm very down the line I don't mind when people say, I just don't think it was a right fit. Because I'm like, that's totally fine. Because when I hear they get an agent, and actually I see the agent and they're really happy, I'm like, they found a great fit there. And I'm delighted for them. Say so, so you've done research and you've highlighted maybe four people from the same agency, but you obviously, you, you, you email two. Is it right for the individual that sent the email out of courtesy to say, look, I've also emailed so-and-so? Yes, Absolutely. If you if you got if you've got two or three people in mind in the same agency and you can't cho choose between them, you're a bit confused. Maybe because and maybe as you say, you don't know the ins and outs of the industry. Um, but you've picked these two or three people. You like what they do, and you're like, God, what if someone said one of one of them says no? I don't want to lose out on the opportunity. So let me just do three. Approach the three, but be very like clear in your email. Going, listen, I want to be upfront first. I've also approached your two other colleagues um, because I, I admire all of what I admire what you all do. And I'm, you know, I'm a young filmmaker. I'm on the, I'm, and I'm shooting fishes in a barrel, really, at this stage. And I don't mind that. And, and neither do any of my colleagues because at least if I say no to them, then I will just say, I will leave you to continue the conversation with my other two colleagues. Um... Now, in saying that, if someone does approach me and I say, no, I don't have the ability or no, we're not the right match or anything like that, I do 
usually offer to share their details with colleagues in my department. And at the moment, there might be about four or five in my department at this point that may be looking to build their lists. And so I know who they are already. And I'll, I'll send the details to them and say, listen, if they're your cup of tea, feel free to engage or decide between you who would like to engage with them. Um, and then hopefully a conversation can happen. It doesn't always happen, but sometimes 5% of the time I've had someone come into me that isn't a right match. And I've sent it on to a few of my colleagues and one of my colleagues has picked it up and it's love at first sight. And that's great. So just the second part of that is say if you've emailed Sally and then you've emailed Abdul at the same agency. Sally says, no, I'm not really into your work, but best of luck. Behind the scenes, and I'm talking about the psychology of a creative, is it going to be, oh shit, Sally's going to go and tell Abdul. No, 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 no. Meaning that you haven't written that agency off then? No, because we're all different agents, even if we're under the same agency. So all of us at United, we're all good friends, we're all great collaborators, but we all have very different tastes. But taste does not equal talent. So there's people, very experienced people in the industry that I don't really, they're not for me. Even though they're films and TV shows, I appreciate them. They get great reviews. They, they're held up by a lot of people, but they're not to my taste. But I can still look at them and go, yes, they're talented. Uh, but they're just not for me. So I've met people and I've reviewed the work of a lot of people that I can see are talented, but I don't spark to it. And if I can't, if I'm not passionate about it and I can't sell that passion, I'm going to do a disservice by just taking them on because I'm like, Oh yeah, I think they'll do well and I think they'll get stuff made, but I won't like the stuff. That's like giving yourself a prison sentence. So if you email one or two or three, three of us, I wouldn't go beyond three really, but and, and, and make us all aware that you are talking to, to people, then if I read something and I or watch something and I'm like, it's not really for me, but one of the other people I'm kind of like, I actually think it might be more for them, then I'm more likely to go to that other person that's been emailed and go, I think you should take a look. Uh at the work um, I think it might be your cup of tea or I've seen it before and done it before where I've looked at somebody's work and I've kind of thought of an agent that I work with who I think oh I think they might like it and I might go if I sometimes I, I don't have the time and it's not in my headspace but so, if you get me on a right day where I'm kind of in a thinking strategizing mode I might think oh such and such you I know actually might gel with that and I'll pop down to their office and go are you looking at stuff at the moment and if they go yes and I was like I have something you might like do you want me to send it over to you? And then I'll see if they want to take the conversation forever. Obviously, people improve, right? You know, in, 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 you know, technically, you make one film, you make two, three, four, you get better and better. Now, if at your, say, earlier on in your career, you've you've been to an agent and they're like, just to say they've just said no. They haven't said, don't ever talk to me ever again. They just said no to you. But, in three, but three shots later, you are pretty sick by then. What would you advise? Should they go back to that same agent? I think I would never say no to somebody unless some unless an agent has been very been very clear to you and went, I don't think we're the right match, or I think this is not going to work out, then I would be hesitant of say of returning to that. What I would say is if you get a response from an agent whereby they're too busy to consider your work at the moment, or they they give an answer that isn't definitive it's not closing the door completely and you return in a couple of years time you've made more work and maybe your maybe your work has gotten an ac some sort of accolade or it's kind of getting people's attention in a big way that agent might be in a better position to have a conversation with you i don't say it enough and maybe i should but sometimes 
when I do get work in, I, I, I will tell people I'm not the right fit for you. And it's, it's like, and, but I'll say to them, I was like, that's no reflection on you as a filmmaker. It's just my personal reaction. And I think you're talented. So please keep, keep going. Yeah, because what you said about taste is really important, Mark, because that's a revelation for me that actually it's not about if they might not like me and not think that I'm not talented. It might actually be that they, it's not their taste and it doesn't matter how good I get, I'm just not their taste. No, exactly. It's the same as I say, like, ah, oh, they're gods. I mean, there are people that I've known before and like, like big Oscar winners and big festival people who are lauded and... I've seen their film, I'm like, yeah, beautiful, but it didn't make my heart sing. Yeah. Yeah. But again, that's not, that's not me going, it was shit. That's just me going, it's not for me. And it's the same with agents and, and talent. So I would say to any filmmaker that knockbacks from agents, if you don't get an agent, shouldn't be seen as, oh, I'm shit. Um, that's just one person's opinion. And also... If someone is saying that they're too busy to engage with you um, and they don't have the capacity, that is quite often the truth because agents are, we're, we're busy creatures in the sense that our lists, when you look at it, we have, I have about 31 people on my list at the moment and from an agent, like for, for general, in terms of context of other agents on my level, it's it's kind of on the small side when, when I kind of grow in stature, my clients start doing a bit better and there, there are bigger deals to be done. And I'll have an assistant one day, probably, um, there will, the list might grow, but I don't want to grow too far beyond that if I can help it, because I I'm quite involved with my clients, um, in terms of their work, um, are strategizing every kind of facet of their career. I endeavor to be across with them to give them that support. And if you think you're doing that for 30 odd people, that's a lot of time to give because there's nobody really on my list that just sits there. When people see my list, I want them to see a list of people that I am actively talking to, I'm engaged with, I know what they're doing and they're, there's an activity there. And so, but no agent can do that for so for so many people or be that on it all the time because there's not there's not enough hours in the day <laughs> and it's it is a genuine response to it and i think a lot of filmmakers i think when they go and they get knocked back by agents and they're like what was the excuse oh they're just too busy to read my work and it's like it, but it really means that i'm shit and i'm worthless and it's kind of like, no that's not what that means there is a genuine thing where agents are too busy sometimes to engage with you and i know it's so frustrating from filmmakers when they email agents and they don't get a response at all that is that is like well, what do i do because I've, I've i've emailed two people at this thing and i've told one of them's just not got back to back to me and it's like i don't want to pester them what do you do i can't i can't email the third person i had as a, a, a on, on my list because I've, that one's still outstanding yeah, and that is a frustration that i wish i had the answer to but it is if I paint a picture of what an agent's inbox looks to you, there are an average of hundreds, like one to 200 emails maybe a day come in, depending on the kind of agent you are. I won't even go into an actor's agent because their inboxes are just insane. 
But for film and TV, with the amount of emails you kind of get with the mixture of from clients, from producers, from new subs, um, from industry updates, from internal dialogues, there's such a collection of communication that comes into them every day. And they have to do, they have to train their brain to focus on what they can and what needs to be done. And that's why when filmmakers approach agents sometimes, their emails get lost. And it's not out of any kind of spite or vindictiveness or not caring. It's just because we have not been able to get to it because we're just trying to get through what we need to get through without imploding. Um, So I guess like a lot of searching for new clients, I, I assume it's extracurricular on top of the day job, essentially, which is like, that's you going out of your way. I guess the question I was going to ask, yeah, so if someone comes to you with like, and you've, you've, you've given them a not yet, you like their work, but it's probably too early in their career. What is it that you're looking for them to go on and do before you start up another conversation? And what does that look like? For directors, it's very much a case of if I, if I've seen two of their shorts and I'm not blown away particularly, but I see the kernel of potential. But if after two pieces, there is no real sense of growth between the two of them and it feels a little bit, and this is awful. It's, it's quite harsh, a kind of rule to make, but I kind of have to, when you consider the amount of work that we review. If I don't see even kind of an advancement in the storytelling ability or the visual style or the, the succinctness of what a short film has to be in terms of like, you have a very small space of time to, to tell a full story. It's, it's tricky as hell. Sometimes it's harder than making an actual feature because features can go on and on. Martin Scorsese yeah. can tell you, you that. You have dead scenes. Yeah. Whereas yeah. shorts, you have, you have 15 to 20 minutes maximum sometimes. Sometimes you only have 10. And to craft a story that really hits home in that period is really fucking tough. Um, and if a director, I've, if I've seen the work and I've seen two pieces and I don't see kind of advancement in terms of honing that craft of storytelling, I'm very much a case of, I see something. Maybe go away, try your hands at another short. If the timing, if the, what they've made is maybe limited in time, maybe they've only done something that's about 10 or 12 minutes long, I'm like, maybe stretch yourself a bit. Maybe aim for something that's 15 to 20 minutes long. Maybe that is too short a time for you to tell your narrative the way that it needs to be told. Experiment a bit more and then come back to me. Um, but usually... Well, for me, when directors approach, if if usually I make a decision after watching two short films and I'll kind of know in my gut, and again, this is just my personal feeling, that if after watching the two short films, no matter how early on they are in their career, if I can't see it even in those early kernels and I don't feel the need to kind of want to continue the conversation and be like, I'm excited by them, then I probably won't engage with them again. Literally, because it's, again, it's headspace. It's just the ability to to be across everything. And there will always be situations where that person might come in and then all of a sudden, three or four years down the line, it's like, oh, their debut feature came out and it's now the lordest thing in the industry. And I'll be like, good for them. But I didn't, I didn't, but I, but I will be, I'll be, of course, I'll be a bit like, damn it, why didn't I see that? Or what, why didn't I capitalize while I had them in front of me? Yeah, yeah. But I also have to take the tact 
if it was meant to be for me and them, it would have happened. And there's, I've, I've seen instances where people have been with agents up until a point in their short's history. They've then changed agents. And then all of a sudden, something has changed in that matrix. Something has shifted. And all of a sudden, they then go and do well. And there's kind of a thing of like, oh, with the old agent, oh, God, if only I'd they'd stayed with me and like I could have like I could have helped with that or I could have got that off or like I could have imparted that journey. And it's like, but maybe you wouldn't have. Maybe the maybe the reason that thing happened was because that change happened for the filmmaker. And so there's it, it there's always like questions of like shoulda woulda coulda. I've seen I've seen people come through the doors both as an assistant when I worked for my old agent before I became an agent where stuff came into us we didn't act on it, but then we still sit saw them go away and make great successes of their careers but that's because they went down that particular path if they and we could say oh if only we could have imparted that if they came to us it's kind of like well we there's no guarantee that that would have happened for them if they had come to us if you get a no from an agent it's a no from that agent it's not necessarily no from the mass of agents that are out there when you're picking a project as a director it can take years so you want to work on a project which you're going to be excited by for, for years and years. Yes. And it's the same for you guys, right? You want a filmmaker which you kind of believe in and that you can see yourself like wanting to f sell in rooms for years and years because people need to see, see them and their work. Our questions and everything has been centered around agents, come, uh, filmmakers coming to you. What about the other way? Do you sometimes go looking for talent? Yes. I mean, I when I first started building my list, I was a bit more active in that respect because that was the only way it was going to happen. No one kind of knew about me at the time so I had to get my name out there and make myself known um at the moment I wouldn't say I would be as active in that respect but there do come particularly around festival time and but also like a truffle pick sometimes even if I say I'm too busy if I see like the release of the schedules of like Rotterdam or Berlin or Cannes or San Sebastian or Sitges or any of the kind of festivals that I love to track talent at Goldberg I can't help myself just to click on and go, okay, who's the, who are, who's in the debut feature section? Who's in the short film section? And I'm like, oh, that sounds really interesting. I'm just going and like, I'll go on a little search and then I'll end up deep diving for God knows how long to find information. And then before you know it, I've gone contact details for that person and I'm emailing them asking to watch their work. And I'm like, I don't have, what am I doing? I don't have the time to put them. And then before you know it, sometimes it's like, Okay, I've I've signed them. Great. Okay, I need to make more time for myself or for them. This is fantastic. But then I'm also like, okay, really need to be mindful that I also have other clients. I have responsibilities and I can't get too carried away by the excitement of the next client that's coming up. Because if you, if we as agents keep chasing the next thing that happens all the time and keep trying to sign that, then sometimes we lose sight of the people that we already have, that we, we were excited about and should still be excited about. So this year is actually about me training myself more to not run after things like a magpie and be present and focused for the people that I have already and to make sure that my time is rightly invested in them and while giving myself that little bit of time to track and be aware of new talent that's up and coming and judge at an appropriate time whether I have the ability to expand my list further. But the unique thing here is in, in this conversation that we're having we've got 
an agent and we've got a client of an agent and I'd like to know um, why Marcus, as a filmmaker, as a director, you chose Mark. Um, and this is not to spend time blowing smoke eat up each of his asses. <laughs> oh, loaded question. <laughs> this is genuinely because it's a good case study uh, to find the mindset. Yeah. I think what it was, because I was like, you actually reached out to me, didn't you? Um, I think you saw a, a social media post, which I was included in, and then asked to see some of my work. And so weirdly, about a month before that, I was already like doing research about agents and think and asking everyone if I should approach people because I didn't want to get involved in a rat race like six months down the line after graduating and and then having to figure out the industry once I've already left. That felt stupid to me. I wanted to kind of get all the awkwardness out of the way. So when I left, I could just kind of hit the ground running. Um, and yeah, I, I remember I got talked out of doing that. <laughs> and I was like, just wait, just wait, just wait. There's no need to rush, just wait. I was like, okay, fine. And then you reached out to me. I was like, okay, cool, that's great. Um, and then we had lots of, I think we had like two long conversations, kind of like this, just asking everything <laughs> about the industry and things um, and what that had looked like. And I think I had a good vibe from you. And I liked the fact that you actually reached out and you critiqued all of my work and said what you liked about it, which which was helpful. I think... The, re the retreat released online we kind of left it and you actually allowed me to go and speak to other people as well which was good because um rather than putting any pressure on it um it was a case of you should get an idea of what is out there um which was in my thinking as well so then kind of I think when the retreat released online I ended up getting a bunch of extra heat and I'm not sure if I told you but I had offers from four other agencies yeah <laughs> Off the back of that, it was then a case of like trying to decide. I liked the fact that you you took the effort to to find me for one, and you kind of watched all of my work and, and you put that sort of like time and effort in. And also, it was your bluntness, really. Is that I really don't like salesmen <laughs> at all. But there's like I can sense an honesty from you, which I'm kind of Oz knows this. One of my biggest things that I've been worried about is getting carried away in my career and thinking I'm further ahead than what I am because internally I get really excited by my ideas um but I don't want to be like 10 years down the line thinking I'm like hot shit and actually like but you've done one feature and it released in 10 cinemas and you're not there yet so I think always having someone who's super honest and grounding was was really important and the best bit of advice I'm rambling but the best bit of advice I actually got uh when I was trying to figure out how to make a decision was you should go with someone who you can imagine selling you in a room that you're not in. Um, and I think there was a moment when um, we, at the NFTS, you do like a meet the industry unit and you were kind of involved in, in that and you just came across really well. So I was like, I can imagine this guy telling people to hire me. Telling people, threatening people, you know. <laughs> Thanks for that, Mark. Cause I think that's really, really important for people to hear because, you know, it's always... You know, sometimes, like we were saying, Mark, at the start, there's a lot of emphasis placed on the agent, but it's like, well, why is the cl well, client chosen that particular agent? What's that decision-making process about? Obviously, I know the answer because we've spoken about it loads with Marcus, but it was it was important to share that, I think. I remember going down that, again, it was like Marcus is part of one of my rabbit hole routines of just going down and like finding out about somebody and then getting in touch with them and getting the work and seeing the work. And what was very kind of evident for Marcus is that, well, a, he had had 
his own kind of career before going into the NFTS and he had really pushed himself to set himself up as a filmmaker before film school to the point where I knew Marcus didn't actually need to go to the NFTS if he didn't want to. The talent was there, he would already proven himself. But the NFTS was just giving him that two-year ability to go in and experiment. He really flexed his muscles with the three pieces that he produced and also showed a maturity to his filmmaking that he learned before he went into the NFTS. When I saw him, he was kind of like, the school of life has already taught this dude. The NFTS is almost just like, it's for him to play, like, you know, to play around with those life lessons and have the facilities and the equipment to do that without worrying about, oh, where am I going to get hold of this kit? And then meeting and talking to him, it was just very, it was a very mature approach to being a filmmaker and a realistic approach. And the work that he was drawn to was very much my cup of tea. It was very grounded social commentary genre. And but also that real excitement and want to, 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 to break down boundaries of what that could mean for a film. And there was just a, there was just like a crackle around the potential of him. I remember like literally I knew everybody was going to be after him. There's all like you, you, you watch work and you're kind of like, yeah, he's going to have buzz around him. And so when we were talking, but it's always important that when you have the opportunity to meet loads of different agents, you do it because every one of us would love to just sit down with somebody we love and go, oh my God, sign with me now. If you don't play the field a bit and you don't get a sense of what other people do and the approaches they take, then it, it, it becomes an uneducated decision. And the worst thing is, is that like blocking someone's ability to have other conversations just because you want them isn't right. When I knew that you were going to have all the conversations with those other agency, I was like, that's great. Go ahead and do it. <laughs> so, so happy for you. And then coming off the Zooms and going, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and like, I, because I like, and I knew some of the agency was going to see, and I was like, I don't have a fucking hope in hell. <laughs> um, and then to have that, then for him to come back and go, listen, I've met everybody, but I've, you know, I, I, I really, I really vibed with you and you got my work and you get me and I think you'll keep me grounded. And if anything, I do keep keep, I do keep, keep, keep people grounded. You can ask most of my clients. They're like, yeah, no, for like, there's no cloud nine in sight. That's great. Well, you, you've got Lucky Marcus Money, the great filmmaker. Thanks, man. And a great person as well. I appreciate that. So I think what would be good to know, because this is the other side of it, is... Yes. Say I signed with you, the switch flips... And then suddenly all the work comes pouring in, right? Oh, yeah, sure. Absolutely. We just we <laughs> sit back. We watch the money roll in. We don't lift a finger. You made it. You can't see us because it's an audio podcast, but we're all in Marbella. And... Yeah, Harrison Ford has taken my beach chair again. I'm beyond pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> you get signed. So then first portrait call for me usually is, okay, I want every bit of work that you've ever done or you've attempted to do. And I want to watch it. I want to read it. I want to review it. It's, and like some filmmakers get really then like worried because they're like, oh no, but Mark was shit. Oh no, but this was shit. And it's like, send it to me now. And they're like, oh no, you won't, you won't want to work with me. No, you'll fire me when you see it. And I was just like, no, just send it to me. Because I want to see where the journey started. And I want to see what out of those kind of materials you want to potentially explore further that you're still kind of excited about 
and see whether there's something else that we can do to move them on or whether I need to have a, a serious conversation with you and use the Elsa line, let it go. Also, it's about kind of getting a sense of who you know already in the industry. So Marcus had a great opportunity to meet a load of execs as part of the NFTS, but then he got additional requests to meet with people off the back of how well his shorts were doing outside of the school. So I asked for a full list of anybody that he had been in touch with, and I then matched it up with a list of people that I thought would get him in his work and see if there was any similarities. That's kind of then has been a tentpole for us to use in terms of the introing his shorts work and the features that he's been developing over the last couple of years. Kind of getting a lot of that has been like people just watching going, really love his work, really looking forward to like reading some long form material or looking at new stuff when he's got when he's ready to go. And we've kind of got those kind of things lined up and he's had some great meetings as well over the last couple of years. And there's still of my of my work and the people that I meet, because as you'll see in the industry, there are loads of production companies popping up left, right and center, people getting deals with mm-hmm. high TV studios, people coming under the banner of BBC studios. It's it's never ending. So we as agents are always going to meet new people more regularly than we were maybe five years ago. I'm always having conversations where, and it's good to see where some producers, particularly in TV guy, we'd really like to be more ahead in knowing directors. Um, because we're starting to learn that it's important to build relationships with directors early on as well for our shows, but also for ideas they want to develop. Because just like writers, if they get to a certain point, then they get too busy and we can't touch them. Once once you've been signed as well, what do you kind of expect from the client once you've kind of weighed up what they want to be doing and what's next? Because um, I think you touched on the the money situation. It's like how how do you survive and all these sorts of things so yeah what does that look like the the first 18 months i'd say i will always say to a filmmaker don't quit your day job um make sure that you always have some sort of income that allows you to keep a roof over your head put food on the table allows you to have a life outside of filmmaking excuse me what's important is that you don't starve yourself either physically or mentally for this job for, or for, for this lifestyle. I think particularly with lockdown, what's become more important is that giving all of yourself to this might feel like the right thing to do, but it's not the healthy thing to do. You should always have, as a young filmmaker starting off, you need other things in your life that give you joy, that give you positivity, that, that, that fuel, that fuel you in your endeavor to become a filmmaker. Because giving everything to this now will not be reciprocal to the extent that you need in order to feel that all-consuming want to do it. You will just get, you will not get the same back in terms of want and enthusiasm and that you will feel deflated and you'll feel like you failed. Mm. And no one should ever feel like that because that's not what life is. I expect people to have that kind of life or to build that kind of life around their love of filmmaking to make sure that they have those avenues because then also that makes you a good filmmaker makes you a better storyteller if you're happier in the mind or, you, or at least you're you have other avenues in which you know you can pick and choose where you get your happiness your sadness your your struggles um your your victories that then informs your storytelling uh, um 
And in saying that, I still want to see that while you're built, while you're kind of building that kind of support system, that you're still carving out time or setting aside a time, setting time aside to follow your ultimate ambition of being a filmmaker. So, idea generation. If you're a director looking at avenues to get your next short made or developing treatments or collaboration with people to create longer form projects that can be pitched out, that can be used alongside your shorts work to introduce you to people, to show that you have range, you have a hunger to do this and to do it long term. And you have to do it off your own back. So it's like spec work all for free. Um, until you're at the point where you can hand in a page to somebody at Paramount and they're like, here's $100,000. That does not happen anymore. Uh, but here is a load of money to develop it further. And also communication. So making sure that, you know, you're, it should be a two-way street of communication so that the agent is in touch with you, you're in touch with the agent, because for now, you are each other's kind of, universes in the industry and then you're both building out that universe bit by bit to bring more people and the right people into it and you are ultimately the decision makers of who gets to come in and who gets the fuck out um and having that open dialogue and having truthful honest conversations about what to expect and not to expect so like when marcus goes into meetings with people he gets we we talk about context about what this is about and what he should be talking about and what someone is likely to be drawn to um and jump on um if he's going in for say meetings on tv gigs which has started happening over the last year it's like okay being realistic about the work that's involved how likely he is to really get to the next stage of the process um what the nature of the show is how he might talk to the producers um what how he's interpreted the material if he's read if he's read the scripts is there anything that he wants to run through before the meeting that he's not sure of luckily the last couple of things that we've talked about they've been so up his street that it's basically like i've read the work and then he's read the work and they're like he could go in and pitch this with his eyes closed um but there will be those bigger challenges where he goes into bigger tv meetings and he has to be and this is where both of your experience on house of the dragon comes in so valuably because you know how to assess material from a budgetary position as well as a production yeah. uh, and editorial position you know how to talk about craft and creative as well as restrictions and how you might need to do something on the cheap as opposed to throwing mm -hmm. money at the problem and that's what producers love to hear as well so I, w I want to see proactivity but also balance Yeah, looking after themselves while also looking after their talent and nurturing it. Brilliant. That's that that was fucking I've never heard that. So that's brilliant. What what I'd really like to know, well, hopefully what everyone else wants to know as well, is is about the building of relationships. Like how do you plot that out and um what do general meetings look like? Because I don't think people even know what generals is. Um because that's basically what the first year is basically, isn't it? It's just getting to know people. So if you could talk us through through that. God, what what I hate that word. The idea of going in for a general to a producer is basically, it's like a get to know you opportunity. It's where, well, it's almost like the kind of process that you had when you, if you were, if you start meeting agents or if you have met your agent and you've signed with your agent, this is kind of the next stage of like dating or speed dating. 
where you're going in and then you're going in to get to know people that are ultimately going to help you make the work. So us agents are there to kind of help you make the work, but in a different capacity. These are the people that are going to be more so in the production and the creative trenches with you. And are then when you come out at the end of it, you're both going to be holding this end product together. You're looking at these people in a much more, I suppose, dare I say it, interrogating mind type, but so are they. That you're looking at each other going, okay, would I trust them with my work? And would they see it through to what ultimately I want to be? But also, could I sit down with them and take constructive criticism from them and trust their judgment if we need to change direction in any respect? And would the product then still look like something that I am proud of? The producer is looking at you going, will they have the strength, but also the drive to really give what needs to be given to a TV series or a film? If an obstacle comes up, and they're, they're the experts, they've gone through all of this stuff before, they've gone through the highs and lows, and they look at you and they're like, could they get on a roller coaster with me and come out the other side with both of us unscathed? Or at least, if you're scathed, then at least you're at their battle wounds and you could look at each other and pat each other on the back and go, thank fuck we survived that. Or, are they going to really crumble when the going gets tough? Or, at, at like, are they going to, are they going to be too precious with their work? Are they not going to be open to collaboration? Um, is there a fear of working in a team and being like too? To, and this is the can be the problem with film school, where sometimes you're a bit too incubated and you don't realize all the voices that are part of a process of making a film or a TV show. And sometimes all those voices, particularly if you're a young filmmaker and you get your big some some filmmakers do get their big breaks in terms of making their own TV shows when they haven't done that much before. Sometimes all of those voices that you have to contend with are a lot for filmmakers. Very painful. And I think, I don't think a lot of writers or directors know that or are prepared that much for it. I don't think anything, anything can, can it, Mark, unless you're actually there or you shadow. No. Yeah, unless you see it, you can't. Unless you see it. Yeah. Like this is, this is where pretty much this podcast came from is is I, I trained at NFTS as as everyone knows and um off the back of that there's a lot of stuff that I didn't know about the industry um specifically TV industry which you don't get taught there and it's it's through no fault of their own because you're working on being a filmmaker and they're trying to protect the artistic integrity of you and see what that is it's tricky and you can't know it until you unless you 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 shadow or you get access to it or you've been around those circles to really see it for what it is. And also if you've got an idea for something like how many people that has to actually go through and harnessing that it's a skill in itself is that it's the other side of it, the, the, the kind of like personal side of it that you have to manage as well in, 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 in interacting with other people that are there to execute a vision. Yeah, and right. the other thing you have to contend with is that when you give something, particularly in TV, when you give, an, whether you're a director, showrunner, or a writer, showrunner, when you give an idea over to a room of execs, producers, everybody, they all want the best for the show. So no one ever comes in with notes to intentionally derail something or intentionally devalue something. It's just people come in sometimes with conflicting notes, which can be very frustrating because they have to fulfill needs of the bodies that they represent. And that's where sometimes 
there can be creative conflicts and where showrunners can get really frustrated because it's kind of like they're messing with my vision and it's like but they're not doing it vindictively or they're not doing it they no one wants this to be a shit show or or an absolute failure because financially it won't make sense and it's 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 so damaging but it's also not what this industry is about and I think what the, a lot of the times I hear from people is that, you know, there is frustration. It's kind of like, well, they're giving these notes and they don't make sense. And it's kind of like, okay, well, has there been a discussion? Are you going to have a discussion about them? Like, yeah, well, I'm going to get together with the producers. Like, okay, well then tell them that they don't make sense to you. Obviously they have been put in place for a reason. Get the perspective of the other person to see why they have put the notes into place there and if they're if they if they explain themselves like oh well we, we we suggest this because this needs to happen or we need to fulfill this maybe then you have another idea of how that could be fulfilled in a way that feels better to you that it comes in under budget or on budget um and can be done within the infrastructure that the show or the film has to work with so what you don't want to come in is come with, with an idea to fix in. It's kind of like, that is beyond anybody's ability to do. Yeah. Um, and it, again, it is, all, it is all about shifting perspective sometimes. And that's where, you know, sometimes the auteur perspective of the writer-director, they can really struggle with that because their vision is very much to them. It's like, this is the way. This, this, is, this is what mm. must be. And you must, we must do it this way. And some are very adamant in those fights. And I have to say that some sometimes it is warranted. And I have applauded some writer-directors that have been on set on their own films. They have been pushed to do something, but they have pushed back against it. And sometimes there has caused friction. But their pushing actually has resulted in a great finished product. And the producer has to come and see it and go, I'm happy you pushed for that. I know it was fraught at the time, but it looks brilliant. In the same way... Hmm. It can happen in the reverse, where a producer can push back on something for a writer-director that the writer-director does not like, but it is for the betterment of the film or the TV show, and then you will see the end product, and yes, it was the right decision, and everybody is good. There's also the opposite happens, where people push and get the, and get their way, or get something changed on something, and you look at it and go, oh god. Like, again, these mm. are all... They're all learning experiences, but again, it's also proof that there is no right or wrong way of doing something. It's all much a very in the moment reactive intuition and response to something. And it can go well and sometimes it can. Your vantage point is um obviously it's, it's completely different to the creatives, to those creatives, and you've got so much experience of how the mechanism of the industry works. So the question is, how do you see the pathway for directors from your perspective and what is the route from shorts to being a working director, if it's TV directing or, or feature directing? The frustrating thing with the industry at the moment is that there has never been so much production happening in one period. It's at the point where there is too much happening for the industry to bear. And we are going into 2023 with a real worry that we don't have the crews or the manpower to sustain the amount of shows that are getting greenlit. Um, and that can be frustrating for young directors because they're like, well, there's so much going on. Surely then 
this is our chance, this is our time to get our foot on the ladder. And yet it is still proving difficult to get people into the rooms to talk about these shows. You and Marcus know there, there are shadowing schemes that have been coming up more and more over the last two years. The both of you took part in probably the most involved and intensive shadow scheme that I've seen in the industry so far and got so much out of it. But a standard shadowing scheme for a TV series, usually you'd be lucky if it lasts two to three months. Usually it's maybe a month, two maximum, where maybe you get to shadow a director in each stage of the process, so prep, shoot and post for maybe a week or two at a time. And that's great, and it, observation is good, but we all know that observation can be meaningless, and that you're only going to learn by putting stuff into practice. I've had the fortunate, with you and um, with the both of you, you had the ability to do other stuff on set and to interact with people and to, to pick up equipment actually and engage with it physically and go like, oh God, I'm actually holding something and I'm shooting something, great. And there have been schemes where a few of my directors have been given, there's been the shadowing element, but then there's also been second unit element. That's the, that's the sweet spot. If you can go onto a shadowing scheme and you're actually given the ability to second unit direct and get the credit for that work, that's, that's a brilliant step on the ladder. And it's something that one of my directors has seen some great success from in terms of as she has been going up the career ladder, the second unit work she got in her shadow schemes has led to TV directing work. And I think it's going to gradually grow more and more for her over the next couple of years, which I'm so excited about for her. And it will be the same from, for the both of you eventually, whereby this experience with Warner will pay dividends in terms of your access and what you've been exposed to and what you can demonstrate when you go in to meet producers. And it may still lead only to second unit work for a while to get off the ground, but I always, I have to leave room for the Tinkerbell fairy tale story whereby a show will come around where you will just be the right fit for us and no one will know you won't be able to explain how you will just sit down with the you will read scripts you will just know how to approach this it will just be an innate feeling you will sit down and you will prep for that meeting you will do a, mo a vision board a mood board you will cut a reel you will just feel the need to prepare for this in a way that is going to blow them out of the water and everyone has heard of stories that happen with directors and they do happen because it's just the right time and the right place mm -hmm. And you go into that room and what you show them and how you talk just mesmerizes them. And all they can think about is this person has to direct this in some capacity. And it ca if it can't be lead director because they're not experienced enough, then they ha giving them an episode or two, I think this is something that we should do. And then if you've got the producer's belief, then it's their job then to go in and fight the broadcaster. I really put a case forward and that's where the struggle can be unless the broadcaster or SVOD is aware of the talent already or they've made it a specific requirement or a want to have a younger director take on a block of the series to promote that kind of rise through the ranks. Sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't and it's, it's a case by case basis and it's frustrating because I know a lot of my young directors can do this work but there is a hesitancy because my personal opinion is that because the demands are so big at the moment and productions are so 
brought and so pulled at the seams in terms of time, in terms of like people are exhausted really in terms of what they're trying to do. And everyone knows it. They need someone who can come on and can do it innately, even while they're half tired. So like they, they, they have to kind of work through that exhaustion. They have to, it's something that they don't need to necessarily stop and think about or talk about or to analyze before they do. They can just do it. Yeah. And sometimes and it's only natural that young directors will get there and they might have questions. Uh, they, they might need to talk about it a bit more. They might need to know the process a bit more. You can't be expected to know everything on set. And I think there is a little bit of a nervousness sometimes with directors when you're anticipating, God, they might need more time. They might need more explanation. Uh, and I don't think we can give that on this show. Yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued to know what are the, the stumbling blocks you you come up against what do you hear from people when you're trying to put when you get jobs in does it just say like no first-time directors or like do you put people forward and they then you get pushback like what what does that look like out of curiosity marcus is getting great insights here for himself too <laughs> <laughs> i know it's for everyone mark this is for... asking for a friend <laughs> it's for the listeners oh yeah of course absolutely yes <laughs> This isn't actually a podcast at all. It's just Marcus's diaries to use against me one day. Um, well, basically, when we get jobs in, sometimes it can be, particularly with the rise of NDAs, we used to get access to scripts a lot more easily as agents a few years ago. Now, not so much. We get busy details about the project sometimes, maybe a paragraph of what it's about. Um, sometimes I don't get anything. Sometimes I get sent dates, I get maybe a logline, or I get a sense of what the genre is. I don't even know the budget. I just maybe know the producer. Sometimes the broadcaster is confidential. And I have to make an estimate on what... It's it's so annoying. Because then sometimes I feel like I'm firing people into an ether that isn't considered. But that's all I can do. Um, So I always then go for, okay, right... If I know the producer or the broadcaster, who there works, who I know works there, okay, what have they done before? Okay, I don't want to judge too quickly, but these are the kind of directors that they usually work with and this is the level they usually work with. So I'm just going to focus on maybe three or four of these guys and I'm going to put them forward first and see if that does anything. Um, For anything else, it's like the dream is when I get a full breakdown, synopsis, complete idea of like the, the, the block setup, uh, a series outline or the first episode so just just a block setup meaning oh yeah so in tv the sh- series are broken up into blocks for directors so there's usually so say you have a six-part series sometimes it's broken up into two blocks where one director will do three episodes the other will do three sometimes it's broken up into three blocks so two episodes each so whenever I, whenever i say blocking it's basically like when i cut yeah. the production down into chunks and there's there's like a lead director and then who sets the tone and like the the visual language of the show exactly. within reason and then everyone follows within that yeah so and then that's also a question as well so when someone comes into me and it all depends on the block as well so a lead block director if a gig is going i have to see okay if i get all the materials in okay who has the experience and the ability to do this if i have any directors that are per se a middle block directors traditionally or closing block directors i look at the material and go i think they could handle setting up this series or i think they've got a good they could give a good vision to setting up this series i will suggest them um 
for middle blocks or closing blocks. Sometimes closing block is just as important as the opening block because you have to end the series on a great cliffhanger, particularly if mm-hmm. it's for a returning series because you want to get the recommission. Uh. So those last two episodes can be very important. So sometimes a lead director will sometimes be given two blocks. They'll sometimes be given the chance to open the series and close the series to keep that kind of strength of continuity. Um, or they'll they'll take on a, an experienced opening director sometimes if the two the last two episodes are quite significant and need need a steady pair of hands to see it out. Middle block is the trickiest block out of them all because you're sandwiched between people. Hmm. You don't have kind of the authority to have set the tone or the visual style necessarily. You have to lead on from somebody else. But also you then have to pass on the work to somebody else. You've got a lot of responsibility to keep the story going. So that because the beginning has to start with the bang, the end has to go out with the bang. And you have to keep the momentum that carries the bang Mm. through to the end. You can't sag. You can't sag. And Mm. some people can get frustrated when they're like, gosh, a second block, that's not very exciting. It's kind of like, no, but it's tough as fuck. Because you've got a lot of responsibility on your shoulders and you have to shoulder the responsibility and take the frustration on board that you're not setting up the show, you're not kicking off the show. The money for your block has probably been siphoned a little bit more from the last, from the first block. They're probably holding back on some of the reserves of the budget to give to the last block. Although sometimes the final block director can get really screwed over with all the money has gone from the previous box. And they're like, here, do this. Oh, we had to cut the budget by this. And you're like, what the fuck? Um, but it's really all about, okay, what the series is about. Who do I know on my list can get the tone of this series? Who has done work that I can show and go, they have done this. It demonstrates that they can do this or if they have a love for it or a passion of it and they might not necessarily have the work to show it, can I demonstrate to someone or talk to somebody about that passion and will it be enough to secure a meeting? Oftentimes it's not particularly for a young person, um, but I try. Um, recently, in the last few months, it's been very cut and paste with the, the limited information I've got on series, but also it has been a very definitive line of we need this for this block, or we need this for this block, and we need this for this block. So at least then I, I it's been a bit more tailored from my point of view. It's like, okay, I know what they need at the moment. And then I give them what I think they need. And then the hilarious thing is I've seen then the final um, call list of some productions and I find out who the directors are on it. And then I'm like, okay, they've gone against what they initially wanted. And they've, they've reversed it back to another kind of it's like, I don't know how that director landed into that process. So even sometimes when we're given direction as agents about what the show is looking for, that can change. And we're trying to keep up with the variables variables of that, but sometimes we can't because they're changed so quickly on the other side that before we knew it, we've given them somebody that we think they want. And then the mind has changed. They've already had a meeting with somebody else and that person has gotten the gig. And you're like, but I had someone that was like that, but I didn't get the chance to talk about them because he changed them. And it's just like, God, yeah. I can't keep up. <laughs> and, and just for clarity, Mark, with that, um, just just from a director's point of view, 
do you steer that as well as in like I've got this client and they might be a middle direct uh, a middle block director first and it's like right my next couple of things I want to I want to lead something so I can craft the visual language of this show and I think in two years time we need to look like this so you've got a strategy of how that works I think with a lot of my clients I kind of know the kind of TV if they're if they're filmmakers and they do want to do TV as well I have a sense of the kind of TV that's going to get them excited yes. um and I always try and aim for that wherever I can. Um, there's, again, there's the, 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 the continuing dramas out there and the, the standard primetime shows where people work their asses off. There are, I don't know how people do them. They, they, the, the hours they work and the time they put in is, is phenomenal. And, but some directors, young filmmakers, won't necessarily, necessarily see them as the most exciting shows to work on. And some can be a bit like, oh, I don't want to do Doctors or I don't want to do EastEnders. Or I don't, and it's like, depending on the direction you want to go and the kind of content you want to make, and if you want to be very specific to a path you want to take, then perhaps doing the likes of Doctors or EastEnders isn't what you should be doing. Uh-huh. But at the end of the day, you will learn so much if you do take part in those shows. I think what people can sometimes get worried about is that once you get into the routine of working on a continuing drama, and if they like your work, they'll ask you to come back and do more. And then you'll find yourself, sometimes if you're lucky, getting into a steady routine of being invited back to direct or write on a continuing drama show. And you'll get enough money that actually you will, that will cover your life. And you'll be like, I've gotten very comfortable now and I'm doing a job that I can do. Good people, good cast. It's people watch Seen it. Seen by millions of people. Seen by millions yeah. of people. Yeah. But it might not necessarily be you innately or what you want to do. But you're making fucking TV. This is phenomenal. I've got a credit. Everyone watches my stuff. I'm happy out. And you get into that cycle. But then after a few years, you might then stop and go, oh God, this isn't necessarily what I wanted to do only. I was looking to do more variety, like, I wonder, can I do that? And yes, you can, but you, it's, it's taking you out of that long running, uh, continuing drama cycle, and then trying to put you back into other forms of drama. That can be the challenge because you're associated with one particular type of directing. So I always say to people, if you get the opportunity to direct on any continuing drama, then absolutely take it, go and learn, go and uh, go, go and collaborate with people who are doing this in such a fast-paced turnover world that speed will never become a problem for you. If you can turn over work in the continuing drama sphere, you can turn over work anywhere, really. Always be mindful that if you want to be, be making your own shows one day or your own films or you want to diversify in terms of the telly that you do, make sure that you always give yourself time to explore those avenues, whether developing your own work or maybe taking a block of time and going, okay, maybe I don't go back and direct on Cory or Emmerdale or EastEnders for a couple of months. Maybe I take a couple of months break. I see, I maybe try and do meetings elsewhere, but also there's a short that I want to make or there's a, an idea I want to develop and I want to try to get off the ground. Can I afford to take some time out and work on that for now so that I, keep, I can keep all three in my own voice and I don't let it disappear? And that's important. That's what I always say. It's great advice. Uh, Marcus knows this. I did a bit of continuing drama before Christmas, and it was brutal. But I loved it. It's very brutal. But you, yeah. And, and I, I think everybody should do it. Everybody, if there, was, if there was a pathway and a system, 
that should be part of it. You know, like when you do year nine, you do year ten, and you have to do your options. They doing continuing drama for every director. Yeah, because the dis the discipline. You're not going to mm -hmm. get that anywhere else. Oh no, and it's it's they're well old machines. They, it, it, the, 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 so they've been going since the eighties. <laughs> the, the conveyor belt just goes, and it won't stop for anybody. So when you get on, you have to adapt really quickly. You have to muck in, and you have to go because if you don't, the machine just spits you out. Yeah, yeah. And like that's and it, that's it. And it's I will say, and the hilarious thing is, is that when some people aren't necessarily drawn to doing the continuing dramas it's kind of i laugh because it's kind of like even if you came around and changed your mind i don't know if i could get you onto them because they're so bloody hard to yeah. get like to get people onto them and it's like that's the where people are like some people are like oh, okay i i i'll think about directing on casualty i'm like great but i like literally it might be hard for me to get you a meeting on casualty than it would be to get you on a, a new primetime drama with BBC or ITV or something else, they're, they're just as they're as difficult to get on because of that fast-paced nature. Yeah, this this mm. so fast, they're so fast. I've had the fortune to think of being able to compare House of the Dragon to it. You do the continuing drama and you know how to do it. That should technically, in theory, be easier for you to manage then, because you've done it at yeah. such a fast pace. I think that was the thing with House of the Dragon, right? The thing which shocked me the most after hearing about how crazy TV schedules are is how much time they had. <laughs> it, it seemed there was nothing intimidating about the pace at which they moved on that show it was great to see what we're seeing now in the industry is that with there's been a kind of a a shake up with the commissioner pool with the broadcasters so there's new people that have been coming into all the bro broadcasters to take the commissioning editor posts over the last few months um there are new guidelines coming in from all the broadcasters about budgets and slashes and not having again because we're in a in a kind of a a, a verging on reset a recession style year and broadcasters are taking note and they're trying to cut costs and you're seeing that in some shows where they're reducing prep time on some on some shows maybe they're reducing shoots so you have to get a lot more in and more it's basically more bang for your book and post schedules are getting cut slightly as well and so going into that where people used to have a few years ago easily so say you're say you're shooting a block of three eps three by 16 minute episode three by 45 minutes you would traditionally have maybe two weeks prep per episode so an average of six weeks sometimes you get more i have the direct i have some directors who are very lucky where they can get somewhere up to seven to eight weeks of prep depending on the setup nature of the show yeah Others are coming in and they're expected to do it for for four or five weeks, and like it, it, it's again, it's people just like wanting more in lesser time. It's yeah, it's insane. When I look at projects and I talk to clients about projects, particularly in the TV sphere, we look at the schedule, and I'm always saying to them, I'm like, "Do you feel comfortable being able to do what's required in this time given?" with the material that we have and the writing that still has to come and the, the fact that you might it may be a case that you might only get scripts to review and to prepare for while you're in the middle of prep yes. mm. and sometimes directors are like no I think this is this is looking at the material and assessing it I think this is the kind of job that we can move at that pace but sometimes it's like I, I think this, this could end up being a shit show 
where this could this could end up really testing me in a way that I'm not sure if I'm comfortable or I'm not sure if I could deliver around these parameters. And I, I, I question directors a lot more than I have now because I know that it really does impact on mental health. I know people have to work and they want to do good stuff to put on their CV and it, they, they, they want to continue to be relevant or to be seen to be relevant and to working. Um, but I always say to people, don't sacrifice career relevancy for your own health because going in and doing a job and putting yourself through mental turmoil in order to get it done so that you can add stuff to your CV and get pats on the back at the end of the day and say, oh, look, you did it. Isn't it great? Yes, there's validation with that, but at what cost has it come? And I think that that's something we were, I think, I hope that we're all talking about it a lot more in the industry in terms of what people are expected to do with the time and money that's given to them and whether that's a realistic expectation. And I think it, there's a growing trend of it not necessarily being doable and if it is doable then it's pushing people to a brink that i don't think is healthy thank you that quite nicely actually segues into the last question before we wrap you know we've got yourself who's an agent on it and i think we have to ask this question you know marcus and i are people of color obviously you know we're recording this the baftas were last week and there was a whole thing about baftas so white from your vantage point are you seeing true change are you seeing real change happen obviously we had the whole black lives movement of what happened over the pandemic and then everybody spoke up there was going to be real change and promise to change are you actually seeing real change do you think that's happening i'm still seeing a desire for change i'm still seeing lots of conversations being had i'm still seeing objectives being written down i'm still seeing people wanting to be better um in terms of inclusion diversity which I can't bolt, but what we're still seeing is either it, it, it's, it's trying to find the right model. They're still playing around with models in terms of how they can make this happen and how, what they can do to, to really kind of change the industry. And I think it's just that they haven't, I haven't, I haven't seen them crack it yet. When you say that, when you say them, you mean. I mean, I mean, I think the industry, everybody that's in the industry at the moment, whether or not you are white, black, brown, Asian, Jamaican, Nigerian, we're, we're, all of us, there is diversity in the industry in some shape or form. And I think we're all trying. It's not as big as it should be in any way, shape or form. Those of us that are inside that are that can make the change are very conscious that more needs to happen. But uh, there is the ultimate question of like, why, why isn't it? And I think with directors, sometimes I, I question when I have a director and, well, first of all, I don't necessarily like it when directors get approached purely because they tick a diversity box. But sometimes I question producers on if they want to talk about a particular client, okay, great. Um, what about them is great for this project. I think it would be a brilliant opportunity for them. I think they could do a great job on it. But let's talk about what would they bring to the process for you? Like, what, what do you think of their work? Where do you think they sit in terms of what they've produced before and what they can add to this? And I, I like to see if, if a producer has engaged with the work and the talent and they're kind of like, they're, they're kind of giving me some feedback in terms of like, well, we think they're good for this, 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 and they bring this. It's kind of like, okay, well, that's a, that's a great considered approach as opposed to, someone coming and going, 
well, we're looking for a black director. And you're like, okay, why? Great. We should just be looking for the talent. And it's like, okay, we're looking for a great director. And of course, we want to, we want to give opportunities to these people. I'm like, yes, and I champion that. I'm like, yes, you should be. Let's talk about these people and let's make let's let's make this happen for this these people. But it then is a case of like where why that person didn't get the opportunity. Let's have a conversation. Okay, how do they miss out on it? Mm. Um, what can we do to enhance their skill set or their ability that makes them more appealing or more likely to get over the the threshold? We're seeing that, I know that we've talked on the shadowing schemes and the mentorships that are coming up and they've been great, but then translating them to actual directing jobs then it's kind of like, hey, what else do you need to see? They have a collection of authored shorts. They have done a shadowing scheme. What's next? What I would like to see is, and I hope that it's kind of already boiling away within the broadcasters and SVODs that are creating these schemes for directors and production companies, big production companies like Element Pictures in Ireland, they've just um, announced um, a new shadowing scheme for all of their productions for underrepresented directors in Ireland, which I think is great. But when these schemes happen, it's kind of like, okay, when they've gone through these schemes and you you really rate their original work, is there another step then? Would, would you then commit to then giving them an episode of a, of a series when you next go into production? So with the ITVs and the BBCs and the Skies who have these great schemes, it's kind of like, okay, when the person has gone through that scheme, the next step we would expect is then you commit then giving them either if the next step is then, okay, it's second unit work on a series. Great. Commit to giving a second unit job to that director. Give them that credit. Give them that work. I think that's exactly the point. Um, in that otherwise you've kind of, you're throwing brown people at the problem once you've done with that and they've kind of they feel better about themselves it's then the problem's the same you're still locked out and you're still waiting for someone to take that same chance and all the same barriers which existed before are still applicable because you've not actually moved forward because no one can see that knowledge so it's it, the, the problem is is that we are the industry is i think it's got the best and it's got the best intentions in terms of the schemes that it's trying to set up it's then translating those schemes into opportunities that lead to continued career progression so a scheme cannot exist in a bubble on its own and it can't just be looked at and go oh look we've done our part that's all we need to do it's then it becomes the responsibility then of the person who set up that scheme to make sure that it evolves to something else once they finished it because at, at, you are filmmakers you are directors that that's the what you, you can't be just given something and told, okay, that's enough, because then no other doors open then, no other opportunities come in, because it's the person that started that scheme, they're the ones with the ability and or should have the ability and the power to have tested you in that scheme, and then to have evaluated and gone, okay, they really proved themselves in that scenario. Now, let's give them the next challenge. And then to a point where they continue to support and give you that challenge and that raise of the ladder to ideally a point where you are directing an episode of television. It's that one episode of directing that can make all the difference in terms of making others sit up and take notice and take a, take a chance on you and give you the opportunity to direct more episodes. I think that's a very good way to round out. So thank you for 
the the candor and honesty. Very welcome. So thank you very much, Mark, for giving your time. Um, really appreciate it. I know that our listeners are going to really benefit from some of the things and some of the knowledge bombs you've dropped tonight. A week in the life. This is literally just in an effort to demystify the the wonderful social media life which everyone seems to live because people see the wins the, the deadline articles the the applications that are successful but they don't see that that's few and far between and life in between is really slow so <laughs> we're just wondering what you've been up to this week well i've been kind of on my own mental health wellness journey for the last few months and trying to kind of really refocus my brain into doing my job in a way that is both healthy for me and healthy for my clients and it's been rocky and it's been very bumpy but it has to be done the main part of this week for me has been going out and doing physical exercise or it like basically matriculating with people that are not in my industry and talking about things that are not work which is very rare for me to do but I've had to start doing it because I need a separation in my head and which is why I always champion that position with anybody that works in any industry to not give yourself completely to something. And because it would, because in creating the separation for me, I'm hoping that it kind of gives me the energy to do a very intense job, mm. but I can get that energy from elsewhere. But then I can also get my highs and lows from that place too. So that if something doesn't go right in work, I don't take it home for a weekend like is the case a lot of the time for me and I don't let it fester. I don't wake up to it on a Monday morning and just let it ruin the start of my week completely until I found a way to deal with it. So this week, playing hockey and uh, doing a dance class has been the focus of my week. That sounds like a lot of fun physical activity. Um, what sort of dance, at what specific? Oh, it very, it's actually dancing in high heels. Wow. <laughs> that sounds like it's very strong on the legs. I am telling you now, I'm going to have such a core that I'm going to be auditioning for, I'm going to be auditioning for Strictly next year. I'm not going to lie. I was uh, walking through Shoreditch the other day and um, I saw like a guy who was wearing stilettos and like, I think they were waiting to cross the road and rather than just like waiting for the lights, they, they sprinted across and I was like, that was impressive. Like, cause these heels were like pin thin. <laughs> like they darted across. I was like, that was so impressive. So it's a skill that you're learning there, Mark. I mean, Marcus, you should have stopped and said hello to me. <laughs> you were too fast. You flew. Uh, what you've been up to us? Some of the stuff that Mark touched on about uh, filmmakers having sort of like a work-life balance and not letting it sort of like uh, hemorrhage your brain. I've been doing the opposite. So girl, we came on. Marcus gave me a little telling off to just like take it easy. I'm on burnout. Like this week, like this morning, I was dizzy. I went to drop my daughter off and then went to get something to eat. My wife. I've been burning the candle at both ends all week, uh, and I'm really burnt out at the moment. Okay, that's it. That you need to take a step back. He's he's got to have a a weekend of chilling. I think. Yeah. And on my end, I've I've. I'm kind of just in prep for this whole Disney uh, short film, which I'm doing. So that's that's good. We're locking down heads of department, which is nice. Um, and part of the part of it, which I didn't really imagine they would they would kind of sort us out with. They've been actually setting up like personal masterclasses. So amazing. Um, yeah, yeah, it's been great. So like, I got to have a sit down with the director of Turn and the producer of Turning Red on Friday. Um, yeah, which is great. 
they literally like flew in and then they just like we just got to chat to them and on monday we got to sit down with weta um who like did all the visual effects for um for avatar they're all hung over because they just won the BAFTA the night before which is crazy (laughs) (laughs) so it's it's been it's one of those i've not posted about on socials what i'm talking about here but um yeah so it's actually been a bit of a crazy week and that takes us on to the very last section which is nugget of the week which could be anything anything inspiring that you might have come across this week mark okay well i again it's a god i'm I'm turning into my wellness guru now but i came i was i've been deep diving into podcasts myself in terms of just kind of learning about i'm fascinated by psychology and human behavior at the moment but one thing I came across this week was, and it actually relates to filmmakers in general, is the idea of storytelling. And I think it's more pertinent for filmmakers who are born storytellers to really kind of get across the, the point that you guys all have the power to tell stories and to manipulate how and how and why you make people feel certain things. But you also have the power to do that for yourself. And when you kind of get yourself into a a very down or depressed or very kind of, as you say, burned out position, and you were just, you were just hearing these voices in your head of like, God, I'm not good enough. I'm not, I'm not excelling. I'm a failure. I'm everything. That's actually a narrative that you're writing in your head. And you have the power to turn that narrative back around. And as storytellers, this is, I think, a skill that you should all be developing that not just to write something down the page to entertain masses, but to be able to flip the script in your own head and write your own story to maintain sanity. So I always say that whenever you feel the narrative inside of you getting too much or getting too down or too harsh, turn the page and write another story for yourself about a day about a week or about a month you're having and flip it back onto the positive wow that's that's really poignant and makes my nugget of the week seem completely insignificant <laughs> woohoo hit it out of the park <laughs> fucking made us look like absolute mugs um but um there there was a youtube video which i saw pop up on my algorithm which i'm very thankful for it's it's called into the volume and it's uh, relating to the tv show 1899 which was on netflix oh and yes it basically digs down into how they shot it using like the virtual um i think it's the virtual the virtual sets which they create and it's basically like a circular 270 degrees of uh, virtual walls um led walls and they can they can basically you ha- you create the 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 set using visual effects in pre-production and then you pop it all up around so the actors can actually see what they're reacting to rather than uh, just being surrounded by a blank green screen um so it's super informative um and it's a lot of the stuff which we saw in house of the dragon which used the volume wall as well so it's it's if you want to kind of get a good sense of how that works and the pros and cons of it i think that's that was a good little video to watch and mine's um, uh, just a little bit of software that I use on my Mac uh, when I'm writing and I love tinkering and you copy something and then it disappears because you've just copied something else and it's written over it and you've lost that dialogue. It's called Copy Clip and it actually saves the last 80 copy and paste. It stores the copy and paste so that if you do copy and paste by accident, it's actually got it as a list. Okay. Uh, and I've, I've, I've lost dialogue loads of times doing that. I don't lose it anymore because it's on there copy clip that is very smart 
okay, I'm happy you finished last because that's a game changer piece for me. <laughs> you can't see it, but Mark's <laughs> brain is literally exploded. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> uh, Mark, was yours, was it a podcast attached to what you were saying or somewhere where? So there actually, there was, do you know what? I've got it. So I, I listened to um, Dr. Rangan, Feel Better, Live More, Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, um, who used to be on BBC Radio. Um, but he did a podcast episode back in 2021 um, with Jay Comfrey, the sports um, presenter. And I dug it up out of the archives because I like to go on deep dives. And it was Jake who actually kind of gave that analogy of kind of um, reset, reframing your mindset and being mindful of the stories that you tell yourself and that you're the kind of the master of your own narrative and to always be aware that you have that power. Brilliant. Mark, thank you so much for your episode today. It's been amazing. No worries, sirs. Thank you for having me. So if anyone does happen to be listening, get your questions in at the director's take at outlook.com and we want you to tell us what you want to know about directing or the film industry at large and we'll do our best to tell you. We want to ship this as a resource for you, so please do get your questions in and reach out to us on Instagram, which is the director's take podcast. Also, we are on Twitter at Directors Take. And until next time, keep learning, keep failing and keep the fear.